Hello, everybody. Today we are doing a relaxing Q&A hangout. So this is an opportunity for all of you to ask me anything that's on your mind in terms of being an artist, because we have a ton of content, but ultimately answers need to be customized to specific person's needs. And that's one thing I really enjoy doing at the Hangouts, that I can get a lot more specific in terms of my replies. And remember, everybody, the fall raffle ends tomorrow. Give us a super chat, super sticker. If you do that during this live stream, that does enter you into the raffle. Ends tomorrow. We need your help. I dream of the day. I don't have to ask anybody for help with our content, but think about it this way. We have no paywalls for our content and there are not a lot of platforms like us that do that. But guess what? Somebody has to pay <laughs> for those expenses. We have a lot of them. You've got staff, you've got all different kinds of things that we need to pay for. So any amount is incredibly important. Our budget is tight enough that I'm serious, $25 is a big difference for us. Lozano says, what's the average age for graduate students in art? I think that's really hard to say because unlike undergraduate art school programs, which generally tend to be people who are 18, to 21 or so when they're enrolled, MFA programs, people are all different ages. When I went to graduate school, I was 26 and I was one of the younger people there. Two of my friends who I just adored from graduate school were 40 at the time. I mean, there are people who went straight from undergrad into graduate school who probably were 22 or something. But I do tell a lot of people that it's a good idea to take some time off in between undergrad and grad, because when I got out of art school, my head was just so oversaturated with stuff. It felt like I was bursting at the seams. In some ways that's good because obviously there was a lot to absorb in art school, but it also was challenging because I felt like I didn't really know what to do with all that information. I didn't know how to organize it or to apply it practically to my studio practice. And that type of thing takes time. You can't figure that out in a semester or two. G is asking, should every oil painting have a burnt sienna underpainting or does it depend on the color of the background? No, you can do your underpainting any way you want. <laughs> and actually, since I've been looking at the way Lauren paints, I'm starting to feel like that traditional burnt sienna underpainting. I don't get why it's the default. I suspect when people are painting portraits and figures, it seems like an obvious choice because it's a warmish earth color, which is the color of people. But I'll tell you, some of the most interesting color combinations I have gotten 
have been when the underpainting was some really far out color. Lauren did this phenomenal painting of a sink and her underpainting was really bright, obnoxious magenta. And she did so many cool things with it. The other underpainting technique that I recommend to people is a complementary color underpainting technique. So if you've got a yellow faced emoji, the underpainting is purple, which is the complementary color. I know it sounds really weird, but I've seen people do really cool things with it. I don't think that there's one underpainting color that is better or more effective than another, but I do think it is important to have an experience with an underpainting just to see what's out there. Because once you start testing out the more bizarre <laughs> underpainting color, it gets really fun. Bird Sienna feels sort of boring after a little while. Yes, Daisy, that is my home studio. It's very cluttered. <laughs> Actually, it's also bad today. Plus, I put a couple things in the back so it doesn't look so dank. <laughs> I'm dreaming of having a real studio, but this is not happening for me anytime soon. Johanna's asking, has the raffle been all right with the Instagram account impacted? Oh, I mean, just mindset wise, it's made me feel better to be able to run the raffle while the Instagram is up and running. In case you missed it, our Instagram got hacked. I never thought we were going to get it back. And then all of you mounted a bad PR campaign and left some nasty comments on the Instagram account. And oh, we got it back so fast. So thank you all for making that happen. I feel like they should put that in the help page. They should say, we're not going to help you. So if you actually want results, run a nasty PR campaign, and then we'll listen to you. <laughs> Com Cuke is asking, what would you focus on when trying to improve the drawing skills of elementary age students? I find tips online are more project focused, and I'm trying to build a skill focused program. I actually taught elementary school for several years. That's what I did in between my BFA and my MFA program. What I see with elementary school kids is that they respond really well to different types of materials. One thing that's sort of fun is if you give them a Sharpie and they can't erase, it tends to get them to be a little bit more innovative. So for me, a big part of the drawing skills is inherent in the material because people draw very differently depending on what tool it is that they're holding. I mean, get some temper paint and have them dip sticks in there. That's going to teach them how to draw differently because you're not going to launch into some long lecture about making marks. And I mean, that's a conversation you would have with a high school or college student. And so I would just vary up the number of different tools you can give them. And then once they've had that experience, you can say, oh, well, notice how all of you guys did this with your hand because you were holding a stick. So that's a good way to go about it. And remember everybody, apparently, <laughs> the Ravel's also a campaign for Lauren to save her from my wrath. So if you don't want Lauren to get in trouble with me, I do recommend 
supporting us in the raffle. And guess what? We have so many cool prizes to give out. And honestly, I think this is the best prize out of everything that we're giving out is that Mia will draw your cartoon. And three people are going to win this. It's different than the other prizes. Only one person is going to win. Three people who pledge $50 or more can win this cartoon. And I remember when the staff, when we came out with these, Mia showed them to us. We all were just so over the moon. I mean, it looks exactly like us. I just think these are so cute and brilliant. Daisy is asking, do you have any tips on being better at discerning values? I find that hard. It's the biggest thing I can see when critiquing my own painting. One tip that I do very often, Daisy, is if I'm doing a painting in a color, I, I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. If not, clarify. I will take a photo of the painting and I'll put it into Photoshop and or my phone and I will make it black and white. And usually that is very helpful because when you're working with color, I think it's very difficult to remember to do value because color is very demanding of our attention. We're thinking so much about color that we forget about value. And so when you take that image and you make it black and white, that makes it really clear. And usually when you see that, you realize, oh my gosh, I really don't have a lot of darks. Maybe I should put more of them in here. But the other concept, Daisy, that's important across the board and, and with color as well, is that you compare things to each other. Because what happens often is people will look at the values in their piece one part at a time. And you can't really do that because the values that are in the painting, they affect other values and they get a certain value to look very different depending on what's next to it. And actually, oh God, I'm like never going to finish this painting. <laughs> it's been sitting around for so long. Oh my gosh. It's almost done. I just need to make a border and all that. Okay. So if you look at this painting, you can see that the background is very, very light in value. But the reason it looks like that is because the darkest values are only in the figure. So there's nothing in the background that even comes close to some of the dark that you're seeing in there. And so therefore it makes the black in the figure look even more pronounced. Like if I had all these black strokes in the background, then the background wouldn't have that misty atmospheric look. So I designed the background values based on knowing that I wanted the figure to really pop and that I wanted this to look more atmospheric, not so clear cut, not so detailed. So a lot of it is not just, oh, does it look okay? But what is the effect you're trying to get across? Because actually I posted a short where I self-critiqued this painting, what I wanted to do with it. And there are a lot of people who said, it's not bold enough. You need to have dramatic lighting. You need to have big dark blacks. And the thing is, that's not what I want to do though. That That's another painting. This painting is a lot about the patterns and the atmosphere. And so I had a different goal than what maybe some other people might have done if it had been their painting. So th there's no rules you can say, oh, well, this will always work. 
or this will always look good. It's not true. It doesn't align with your intent. And for me, putting down big, bold, flashy lights doesn't match my intent at all. G is asking, when it comes to Naples yellow replacing white, do you think Naples yellow light is the best option or regular Naples yellow? I think it's almost the same. Sure, there's a difference between the two. Try both. When it's that subtle of a difference, it's usually not a deal breaker. And really, the only way you can find out is if you actually have a personal preference is to do it yourself. Because I know Lauren has this laser eye when it comes to seeing color. And I feel like an idiot because I'm like, I don't know, they look the same to me. <laughs> and she's like, no, look at this. I'm like, oh. it depends on the artist. There's always your own personal preference that comes across. Some super chats coming in from people. Thank you, Sonnet, who says, I absolutely love and to support Art Prof. Thank you for everything you do. And another super sticker from Janice. You guys are phenomenal. Thank you, thank you. Because you know something, everybody? If you didn't know this, most of our budget is from supporters. If we didn't have the Patreon, we would go under overnight, literally. So if people here think it doesn't matter, it does because it's the group of our supporters that make up most of our budget. I'd like to say that we have higher revenue streams elsewhere, but we don't. It's it's you guys, That that's really what it is. Karasu says, do you have advice for getting through artist block or difficult periods when creating? The first reaction I have to that is to take a break. And sometimes people find that frustrating advice because they don't want to take a break. They want to keep going and be productive. But sometimes you have to pick your battles <laughs> because there are many times where I take a long break and I don't come back until I genuinely want to do it. And so then when I do come back, it feels really good. I know that if I'm forcing myself to work for the sake of working and not because I actually have something I want to do or I'm committed to, it's just painful. It's a waste of time because then I end up doing something just out of obligation. I'm not doing it because I actually have something I want to work on. Now, it depends on context because some people work professionally, they have deadlines. Yeah, you can't mess with that. But if you're somebody who's making work, maybe you just want to improve, maybe you're trying to learn something, it really is okay. Because this whole concept that artists have to be consistent, I'm not buying any of that. Who here has been told or has been heard somewhere that in order to improve or to get good skills, that you've got to have a consistent practice? Because I think that's terrible advice. Number one, I don't think it's sustainable because life always gets in the way. And number two, I don't think I've ever had a consistent practice. There's always something like the artwork has a mind of its own. It decides it wants to do this, even though I'm like, no, we weren't going to do that. And the painting's like, no, we're doing this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so don't worry about consistency, everybody, because I just think it's terrible advice. 
so yeah, Karasu taking a break. And I also think spending time doing something else, something that's not art related is actually very helpful. Something where I can't ruminate. So for me, a lot of it is exercise. A lot of it is cuddling with guinea pigs. <laughs> it's okay. It really is, you guys. Don't do this thing where you hound yourself to make work. That is not fun or productive for anybody. Apple O'Day says, personal challenge is to limit my colors to blends of CMYK and white. I'm primarily a monotype printer. Any books, tips, learning, resources? Okay. So I'm assuming when you say monotype printer, you mean you're a printmaker and you do monotypes? Just to be clear. Anyway, we do have monotype videos on artprof.org. Just type monotype into the search bar and it will pop up. If you want a printmaking book, there's a fantastic printmaking book called The Complete Printmaker. It is the Bible of printmaking. And anybody who wants to do printmaking beyond just a few projects should have it. I've referenced it my entire life as a professor, as a student. It is my rock when it comes to printmaking. I guess my question, Apple O'Day, would be, what is the reasoning behind limiting your colors? Because certainly that can help, but I think unless there's a really compelling reason why it needs to be that, it's not necessarily gonna help you that much and might actually make things too limited. I don't know, I, I haven't seen your work. And so it's hard for me to give you a really accurate example, but Get that book, The Complete Printmaker. It's fantastic. I know, the whole draw every day, I find it obnoxious. I mean, if I was a beginner artist and I tried to do that and I failed, I would just feel like garbage. Has anybody had that where you get this advice and it, the problem is it's like eight YouTube videos and they're all telling you the same thing. So you think, oh, well, that must be correct because all these different channels are saying the same thing. But just because people give the same advice doesn't mean it's good. Let's see, Cottage Code says, any printmaking videos, classes in the works currently? I really love the ones y'all uploaded so far. It made me want to explore a completely different medium. Oh, I wish. <laughs> the problem with printmaking is that those tutorials take forever to make. So, so long. Like, whatever amount of time you guys think I put into those printmaking tutorials, times it by four. That's probably close to the amount of time. So I, I would love to make more. And honestly, the way for people to make that happen is to sponsor a video because all of the printmaking videos, the really comprehensive ones, like the woodcut, dry point, all of those videos were sponsored by somebody in our community who wanted to give back because those are the types of videos that, it sounds terrible, but I can't justify making them because they're so time consuming and they really don't create a lot of revenue for us because, we get peanuts on YouTube. I, people look at the channel, they're like, you have so many followers, you must be 
making bank. I'm like, no, <laughs> we're like picking up pennies on the floor. So I would love to. It's just they're expensive, they're time consuming, and we can't afford it. So that's why when people sponsor a video, and we have a whole page about this on artprof.org, that is what makes it possible for me because the complexity of those tutorials is just too much. And I have other things to worry about, like staying open <laughs> and not having paywalls on our content. Karasu's asking what degree would be best for someone who wants to be a fantasy artist? You don't need a degree to be a fantasy artist. I mean, typically speaking, if you wanted to get a degree, probably would be an illustration, but it also depends on the school because certain departments have different emphasis. Like the RISD illustration department where I taught for many years, there's not a big fantasy program in that department. That department is very focused on editorial illustration and children's books, not really comics or some of the other fields. And so you have to do your research in terms of how to make all of those things happen. G is asking, do you think it's cheating when artists use a projector to get an image correctly on the canvas? Nope, it's a tool. The only version of cheating that I think exists for artists is plagiarism. That's cheating. But anything you do, you're tracing, using a projector, doing a grid, they're just tools. And honestly, there are times when it just doesn't make any sense to not use the tool. For example, a projector is incredibly helpful if you're doing a mural. Like what, what are you gonna hand draw that whole thing? No way, murals are gigantic. And sometimes tracing is really helpful. I know some people, if you're just getting started, it feels like a nice approachable set of training wheels. So there's no reason to tell yourself it's cheating. Now, it's a little different if you say to yourself, well, this is a skill I want to be able to do quickly by myself without the aid of this particular tool. And if that's a goal for yourself, that's great. There's other reasons too, like sometimes tracing or projector, sometimes it's just really time consuming because I know some people like the grid method for drawing. Some people that's very helpful to get started, but long-term it is very slow. And so ultimately what I recommend to people is, yes, that's good if you want a set of training wheels, but long-term training your eye is gonna be much more efficient. Jay Leo says, have you used to spray sealant like final fixative under oil paint? Since I'm better at establishing values with charcoal, I wonder what would happen with using it for underpainting, any red flags? I wouldn't. I think there are people that do that technique where you do the charcoal drawing first on the canvas and then you paint over it. I always find it frustrating because the charcoal gets into the oil paint. Now you're asking about a fixative, but the thing is you don't want to put a fixative underneath the oil paint. Now I'm not a conservator. I don't know exactly what is going to happen. I just think number one, it's not really necessary. And second of all, I don't know that that would work actually, because 
even if you put spray fixative on a charcoal drawing, you can still touch it. It's not like you're covering it with shellac and I wouldn't cover it with shellac. I think what's better is to sketch with the paint because the nice thing about painting, you can paint over things a million times and it doesn't matter. So I would recommend doing that instead because I just find that one of the things that's challenging about painting is getting into that painting mindset. And so for a lot of people, the bridge from drawing to painting makes it so that they're sort of drawing with paint instead of really thinking through a brush. So one thing that I do a lot whenever I teach an introductory painting class, typically what people do is they go for a really small brush because a small brush is easy to control. You can make it do whatever you want. And what I see people doing is they hold it like this. So they have a tiny brush and they're holding it like they would hold a pencil. So this isn't really painting painting. This is painting as if you were drawing with a pencil. Now, if you hold a big brush and you don't hold it like this and you hold it, let's say more like this, this is more using the body of the brush. You're not getting the brush to behave like a pencil. And I think if you stay with charcoal for that underpainting, it's much harder to make that transition to a more painterly mindset. Remember everybody, our content has no paywalls. I'm curious because I'm sure you guys use other platforms, which is great. I mean, you should <laughs> use what's out there, but I suspect a lot of what you see out there is not without paywalls that you do have to pay high fees for access to videos, for access to courses. And we make all of our content free which has been a budget problem for us, but I'm stubborn. And I always believed that our platform should be free. And I've worked very hard over the years to make sure it stays that way. But I need your help guys, because I'm not made out of money and I don't have a billionaire boyfriend. I just have my spouse. <laughs> Zach says, any thoughts on using acrylic for intaglio printmaking? Zach, if you want to clarify which intaglio technique, there are so many that would help, but I wouldn't. I, I think it's not a good idea. Intaglio printmaking really requires a very particular type of paint. There's a degree of viscosity. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, viscosity is the thickness of something. So if it's something that's very high viscosity, it's ink, which is very, very stiff. A low viscosity means it has a lot of oil in it. So oftentimes with intaglio printmaking, you can change the viscosity. So let's say you're wiping an aquatint and you don't want it to be so stiff. You can put a little bit of plate oil and mix it in and that then lowers the viscosity. But I just imagine that acrylic would just dry so fast. And if you're doing something like, let's say line etching, which is bit with acid, you're gonna get all that acrylic into the little grooves and it's gonna dry. I just can't imagine that it would be helpful, but I don't know, maybe you have something else that you're doing. If you wanna follow up with that, I'd be happy to take a look. Karasu says, would an individualized major and the kind of art I want to do be helpful? Oh, absolutely. It gives you focus because 
And, and tell me in the chat, how many of you have felt this way? That you know you want to get good at something, let's say color, but you don't really know how to make that actually happen. Now, my advice, I know I'm biased, but we do have a color track and our tracks are free. They are a sequence of video lessons and prompts, and they give you the overview to give you a good foundational grounding. And so if you just go into art and there's no focus and it's like you're just going everywhere, I think it would just be very scatterbrained. So it's not to say that, oh, you pick a major, can't do anything else. It's just that that's a little place to ground you, which I think is incredibly helpful. Remember, super chats, super stickers. Guys, that $10, it goes a long way. It really, really does. Ryan is asking, do you ever find a color you don't use that often, then use and discover new paths by using it. Sometimes. I always tell people I've been dating Prussian blue for a while. I don't know. I think I don't think it's working out. <laughs> because I'm the type of person, I don't like having 15 blues on my palette. I know some people do. It's all personal preference. But I just find if I have too many colors that I don't mix as aggressively, which for me is not good. When it comes to painting, I get a little bit too lazy with it, which I don't like. But every now and then, I'll bring in some wild card color. And the most recent one was Prussian blue. And I kept saying, you know, you got to give it a chance. <laughs> and it just, I don't know, we, we didn't get along that well. We had a couple bad dates. <laughs> and so Prussian blue is sort of on the shelf. Maybe we'll bring it back. Although... I think what I'm interested in using now actually is phthalo green. I, I think it might just because I did that green fairy painting, which was like all green. So I was like very excited about green for a little while. So I think if there's any color I might use to change things up next time, it might be phthalo green. Because in general, I never liked phthalo colors. I always found them really obnoxious. But now that I'm doing work that's a lot brighter and more dramatic in terms of color might be something that I give a shot. Lunja says, question about themes in a portfolio. Do you think it is such a cliche to include struggles of identity and decisions of transitioning? Lots of people say how bad their lives are. Here's the thing. Usually it's not as much that that particular thing is a cliche, as much as it is that it's just so huge, so nonspecific. Usually the reasons why images or ideas suffer is because they're not specific enough. And so if you tackle something like, let's say identity, okay? Everybody has some version of identity on this planet, okay? So it's a very common theme that pretty much anyone on the planet could experience at any point. But when you don't get more specific, that's when it ends up feeling very generic, very watered down. And so what I say to people, listen, there's nothing wrong with those themes. It's fine, but you have to make them your theme. And so some people will say to me, well, I want to make work about women's struggles. And I'll say, okay, well, what time period are we talking about? And it's very different if you talk about women's rights in the 1800s than it is today. And even then I said, well, what country are we talking about? What class are we talking about? What aspect of being a woman? 
are we talking about? Is it something about bodies? Is it something about relationships? And so the issue with cliches is people keep them so broad that they become cliches. And so your best approach with that would be to brainstorm the heck out of that image because that's where people get in trouble. They don't do thumbnails. They don't do any brainstorming. And so you end up with something that's very surface level that doesn't really have the specificity and depth that needs to happen. Cottage Code says, I heard grids and tools stunt a beginner skills. Is that true? Are those tools only for people who have a grasp in their skills already? Oh no, they're for everybody. I know some people tell me that the grids, the tracing, that for them, that was the difference between getting up to draw and never, ever doing it. And if that is a good transition for you into drawing, do it. There's no problem with that at all. Because long term, I do think a lot of those tools are very slow compared to really training your eye. But whatever works best for you. I mean, I don't think it necessarily stunts your skills as much as it just, if you only do that and you don't learn to do anything else, it just limits your skills. It just says, well, these are the skills you have. You don't have these other ones. And I do think as an artist, it is important to get as many skills as you can. And a lot of the skills you might learn, maybe you hate them. <laughs> maybe you never want to do them ever again but you still had that experience. It is very valuable. If anything, to say, you know what? I don't like that technique. I tried it, it didn't work for me. That's the important thing to do when you're a beginner. River is asking, do you have recommendations for art books? Not many art museums, galleries in my area. So I think art books are the best option I have to view more art. Not sure which ones are good though. Well, the answer to a lot of these questions that we are hearing about today is artprof.org. How many people here have been to artprof.org? Because I know a lot of people find us on YouTube first, but there is so much information on our main site that is not on YouTube. I have all kinds of written notes and things. So if anything, to help me feel better <laughs> for all the work I put into the website, use it. And so I tell people to use the search bar. So if you just type in art books, that's the fastest way to get things. And so this one is bringing up, oh, that's not great results. Okay, so I'll show you. <laughs> Usually it's pretty good. But so if you go here and you go into resources, you'll see there's a section here for books. So if you click on this, you'll see we have pages that are organized by different types of books. So educational books, staff book picks, how-to books. Look at this section because this will give you lots and lots of recommendations. And we have two videos where we talk about our staff picks. Oh, I guess you guys don't. <laughs> That's really funny. Sonnet says, I don't use any other platforms. Daisy says, they've tried it. No place like ArtProf. Well, <laughs> what do you think I think about that? Janet is asking, what do you think about fixatives for drawings? I've been using one of those milk casein brands and I don't know, are there better ones? I've never used that before. I'm really boring when it comes to fixative. I'm like Krylon, workable fixative for when I want to be able to work on it more. 
or Krylon Crystal Clear. Actually, somebody got me a fixative for oil pastel that they got for me during the raffle. And I'm really curious about that. So we'll see. But I think the important thing is to use real fixative because some people will tell me, oh, I use hairspray. And yes, you can use hairspray, but it's just not archival. And so I guess I would worry about the drawing degrading over time, certainly long-term, it's not gonna be archival. So if that's important to you, I would use it for that reason. So maybe there are better ones. I just never tried. I just was like, cry long, good, this is fine. <laughs> I, I just, in general, I'm not a huge fan of fixative because it always makes the drawing a hair darker. Maybe other people don't see it. If I showed it to somebody who wasn't an artist, maybe they couldn't tell the difference. But it's like, I can tell the difference. <laughs> I can see that it's a little bit darker. Thank you so much, Kathy, who says, thanks for Art Prof. It's such a gift. And from M. Torty, who says, what is the gray felt thing in your brushes? I'm so curious. Also, everyone get in your last minute entries. Well, thank you so much for your support. Yeah, that's a great question. So this, isn't this so beautiful? Look at this. It's actually a necklace that Christina Torty made for me. And actually we visited her studio in Portugal. When Kat and I went to Portugal, we visited Christina and her sister, and we got to look at all her beautiful felted pieces. So actually, the way you wear this necklace, I'm not that fashionable, but if I had a fancy ball, I would wear it like this. I mean, you can sort of bend it a little bit, but isn't that so cool? It's like too pretty for me. <laughs> like I'm not that fashionable, but I just love this, and she gave it to me, and I, I just love it when people give me things like this, there's nothing like this. Oh, actually, you know what I also have? So I met Christina and her sister, Claudia, and Claudia gave me this little painting of an eye. And the reason it's in this little jar is because it was wet when she gave it to me. But look at this, isn't this so beautiful? And you can see on the back, it's a pin. And to me, this is just the sweetest thing. Whenever I go to meetups and I see people and you guys give me your art, it's just the most amazing thing. I mean, you, you can't get something like this anywhere else. Well, thank you so much, Apple, for donating. And I'm, I'm serious, you guys, $5, $10, it does not have to be significant because it adds up. If we have four people give us $10, that's $40. That pays for one month of the, well, almost the one month of the website. The website is $60 a month. So we have all these hidden fees that people just don't think of, like our free reference photo collection on Flickr. That's free for you. It's not for us. We have to pay annual fees, not to mention taking photos. <laughs> so these are all things that cost money. Right? People don't realize we have to pay for our email list, that we have to pay for StreamYard, that is the software we're using right now for this streaming session, and we have to pay them monthly fees. So it adds up to quite a bit. Alexandria says, I adore the business model. So glad you're willing to put up with budget wibbliness. I don't know that I'm willing as much as I just do it. <laughs> I, just, I'm like, I don't know. I think it's just stubbornness because 
I think we have enough of a following now that I probably could say, oh, okay, we're going to start charging. And we have enough visibility that, you know, it probably would be okay, but it just feels wrong because the premise of ArtProf from the very beginning has been that it makes art education accessible. And a big part of that is not having paywalls. So yeah, I don't know that I'm willing, but I, yeah, I just do it. <laughs> Lux is asking, do you think an art school portfolio that's only printmaking different techniques can be good, or is it always better to do other things? So Lux, I'm going to assume that you're talking about undergrad. If you're talking about an MFA, if you can post a follow-up, I can answer that. But BFA portfolios, you don't want to do one technique. That's not what they want. They want diversity. They want to see a willingness to experiment. Now, if you're applying for an MFA in printmaking, that's a different story. So there's a lot of confusion between MFA and BFA portfolios. They're not the same. In fact, they're polar opposites of each other. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind because actually I just did a short, I think I must've posted it on Instagram at this point. It, anyway, it'll be on YouTube, but I was talking about there's so much misinformation about MFA portfolios. I, I, I'm shocked at how terrible the advice is. And I'm like, who are these people giving this advice? Like, have you guys never been in an MFA? Pro like, how could you ever think you could get advice on this if you haven't taught or been in an MFA program? Like, it just shocks me. The one example that I gave is that somebody was asking me about how to write their artist statement for their MFA. And they said they had read online that the artist statement was like writing a cover letter for a job, which is like wrong. I just was like, oh my God, who's giving this terrible advice? So yeah, we, we give you real advice. <laughs> That's actually accurate. <laughs> Blue says, I love these hangouts. I always feel so motivated to draw while you chat. Right now I'm covered in charcoal. Some of it got on the paper. Oh, how many of you are making some art right now? I know some people tell me, and I love this. It's so cute. People say they like listening to our podcast, listening to the live stream while you're in the studio. And I think that is just the sweetest thing to know that we're together somehow. <laughs> it's just the, the nicest thing to know that we have that community. And we have a question from Biz Related. I have an idea I'd like to explore for a piece. Do you have any videos on brainstorming an idea? What do you think of mind mapping? Oh, I think mind mapping is fantastic. It's a really good concrete exercise you can do. So let me show you guys what's on the website. Because again, this stuff is not on the website. The tracks and the curriculums are not entirely on YouTube because there's a whole written component to a lot of them. So if you guys go into the main menu bar, learn and create, and you go to fundamentals, that will take you to this page. And if you click on brainstorming, you'll see that we have all kinds of videos that talk to you about brainstorming. The one that I would look at first though, because there are so many of these, I would look at the brainstorming track. And the reason the tracks are helpful for people is oftentimes you wanna get better at something, but 
you don't really know what to do first or, or even what to do next. And so the tracks take that out of your hands. So if you look at the first track, click on lesson one, you'll see that lesson one is these rapid fire charts. Lesson two is all about keywords. Lesson three is mood boards. So you basically click on the page and we give you all the information you need to be able to do this lesson. We give you links, reference photos, time drawing videos, all kinds of things. So this is what you'll get on the website that you will not find on YouTube, but brainstorming is a skill. A lot of people don't think it is. A lot of people think, oh, brainstorming, you just sit and think. You don't. You have to learn how to leave no stone unturned. And I have literally had students sit in my class. I give them time to do brainstorming and do this. Literally this. They just sit there. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> They're like, I'm brainstorming. I'm like, brainstorming doesn't work if you're not putting something down on paper. Because you can think about it all day in your head. But you know something? Things don't make sense unless you actually write them down. And so much of what I do is just lists. That's brainstorming. It's writing down lists. And so if you look at our website, you'll see that we have lots of examples, thumbnails, how to actually do it. Because so often I ask people, I say, do you do brainstorming? Do you do thumbnails? And usually I can tell when you guys say, yeah, not much. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm sorry to call you guys out on that. But oftentimes what people think about as brainstorming is like, oh, I looked it up on Pinterest. Oh, I thought about it for a minute. I read an article. I'm like, that's not brainstorming. That is just grazing the surface of what's possible. Oh, good. I'm so glad you guys have checked the site. That makes me feel so good because sometimes I work on the website. I'm like, who's reading this? But if a few of you find it helpful, to me, that is definitely worth it. Oh, welcome from Taiwan. Oh, I want to go back. I went to Taiwan in 2019. We have that tutorial that I shot there that was so much fun. And oh my God, I miss the food. So good. Alexandria says, I think selling is easier when you believe in the product. So I just create art that means something to me. Of course, I don't sell my art. I save that for my day job as a front end GD. I think that's graphic design. It's like you can feel it when somebody's not into their stuff. There's no specific visual signal that will tell you that. But, but you guys know what I'm talking about when you see somebody maybe their work is for sale or maybe they're promoting it on social media. You see it in an exhibition, you talk to them. Do you know what I mean? How you talk to the person and you're like not convinced because they're not into it. And so what I say to a lot of students is listen, nobody is going to believe in the work you do if you don't believe in it first. It's got to start with you. And so, yeah, maybe I'll have some idea and I put it out there and I feel like I'm the only one that believes in that idea. And yes, maybe I feel like a moron. And actually that, that's what Art Prof was. Art Prof was this idea and nobody thought it was any good. Everybody was like, why don't you just teach a class on Skillshare? And I'm like, cause I don't want to do that. And I got so much crap in academia about doing it. And then the pandemic happened and people realized that there was value 
and what we were doing, but it took a really long time. And so you sometimes I'll talk to these artists and I can tell they're not that excited about their work. And so if you're not that excited, there's no chance I'm going to be excited because it takes time to get people on board with what you're doing. So that's a really good point. Aw, thank you, Mr. Mystique. You were helping so many artists. You give us hope. Thank you, Professor Lou. Well, I would love to hear as much of that as you guys want to give me, because I'm not going to lie. It's really hard to do this job. And you put up with a lot of criticism just because, you know, anything you put online, people are going to have something to say about it. But I know there are those challenges, but, you know, you get days where you're just like, oh my gosh, no matter what I do, this doesn't work or whatever. So I will never get tired of you guys telling me kind things about our staff. <laughs> Eli Dove says, use your website all the time. Whenever I want to learn or refresh myself on a topic, I search it on the site. Yes, use the search bar. You can navigate the site. Good luck, it's gigantic. But usually for a lot of people, the search bar is the best version of that. Natalie says, I'm self-taught and in love with abstraction. If I want to become a strictly abstract painter, is it necessary for me to practice drawing, portraiture, etc., in order for me to have any credibility? Nope. I talk to a lot of artists who say the same thing, that they want to do abstract painting. And they say, well, shouldn't I learn anatomy first? And I say, well, do you want to be a figurative painter? They're like, no. I'm like, don't. <laughs> like, just don't. There's so much to learn that you might as well learn the stuff that's actually relevant. I mean, it's not to say that anatomy will hurt you as an abstract artist. Certainly it can work, but just skip it. There, there's no reason you need to do that because there are things like the fundamentals. Like I would say, if somebody wants to work abstractly, they should learn the basics of color theory. You probably want to learn about making different kinds of marks. You want to learn about composition. Like those are all things that across the board go with any type of artwork, but don't let anyone put pressure on you to learn something that really doesn't have a lot of relevance. Actually, tell me in the chat more bad advice <laughs> that you've been given. How many people have told you that? That, oh, if you want to work abstractly, I see this all the time and I don't agree with it. If you want to be an abstract painter, you have to learn to draw realistically first so that you learn the rules so you can break them. I mean, that's the cliche. That's what everybody says. I, I just don't buy that at all. I think it's terrible advice because if you're an abstract painter, you probably don't want to paint realistically. So what's the point? It's such a different skill. It would be like if I said, well, I want to be a skier and people say, well, you really need to learn how to swim first because if you learn how to swim, you can change the way you swim and that's going to help you be a skier. And I'm like, no way. I don't want to do that. So this whole, oh, realism comes before abstraction. I think that's a load of crap. I think do it whatever order you feel you want to do it in. And sure, there's pieces of advice I would give people. I would say for abstraction, really being willing to do mixed media, to try non-traditional tools, non-traditional materials. I think that's very important. But this whole paint realistically first, I think is really not helpful. 
Thank you, everybody. Wonderful super stickers from Lionel, from Natalie, Eli Dove. Oh, you guys are making me feel so much better <laughs> because these raffles are stressful for me because I worry that we're not going to make enough and then we won't be able to cover our expenses. So I do lose sleep over it. So when you guys support us, it's a huge, huge difference. And Brazen says, when entering the raffle by making comments on Instagram, I left pertinent and unique comments and is prohibited from making any more until tomorrow. What? Actually, Mia told me that that happened to her on Instagram as well. She said it limited her commenting. Like, what is this? <sighs> Who knows? I, you guys all know I'm not a fan of Instagram right now. And actually, I was working on a short earlier today telling people what they can do to protect themselves because it's scary. I mean, it took me years to get our following to where it was. And I was devastated at the thought of needing to start again. Comcuke is asking, what was time gap between BFA and MFA? Graduated with my BFA in 2021, master's in ed. Already feel like it's too late at 25. Feels like people start their MFA younger. Not necessarily. I took four years off. And for me, that was very good. That was enough time for me to feel like I could really be my own person. Because in school, you're not really an adult. You're not paying your own rent. And I, I really wanted to have that experience of supporting myself, being an adult, <laughs> doing adult things. And it was very helpful for me. 25 is not too late. Not at all. There are some people who go get their MFAs very young. But you guys, this whole emphasis on youth, it, it's not a healthy thing for anybody. Tell me in the chat if you're tired of seeing Forbes 30 under 30. Here are 30 people under the age of 30 who are amazing. And you're 31, so you're not relevant anymore. Like, it just infuriates me. I mean, how about let's have 70 over 70? I mean, what is this obsession with youth that somehow, because you're 25, you're going to be the superstar MFA? Now, I know the art world's not that simple. There is a lot of ageism out there for sure. And it infuriates me. But I tell a lot of older artists, I say, I know everybody's not comfortable with visibility, obviously. But you know something? The more we see people who don't look like fashion models, who are artists, that's visibility for the true population. <laughs> Only a small percentage of artists look like fashion models. And so I, I think that's part of what helps the community is when you see somebody who is not a fashion model, who is not 25, and you admire their work. Think about how powerful that is. Lo says, listening while negative space watercolor. Thank you for all you do. I know the feeling. And G says, what advice would you give beginning sculptors? I would say get started with really inexpensive materials. Sculpture gets really expensive very fast, especially when you start using the really nice stuff. So one prompt that I really enjoy, and actually let me show you guys, because we do have a 3D area. So if you go to Learn and Create, you do Tutorials by Media, 
and then you click on 3D. There are many different types of tutorials here, like styrofoam cup sculptures. It's just scissors and hot glue. This is sculpting a dog, so this is more like figure modeling. And then obviously things like artist books and stuff like that. But if you want to do clay modeling, keep it small because you end up with all kinds of structural issues that are really, really bad. And you need to learn how to make armatures, which is another thing. And we do have videos on how to do that. But actually, I really like this project, which is just chipboard, corrugated cardboard. And actually, something like this will teach you more quickly about negative space, about form, than clay modeling, which is very slow. And so I encourage a lot of people to start here because it's a lot less overwhelming. Thank you, Brazen. I promote ArtProf to a large community which also aims to make art accessible. There are so many young artists just starving for our education and encouragement. Please never charge. I'm gonna do the best I can. <laughs> We've been doing it, but that's why these raffles are important. We have to keep doing them to make sure that we sustain no paywall. And Chemical Milkshake says, I remember you mentioning that including fan art or recognizable portraits in a portfolio is discouraged. Is there a time where this would be okay? Example of their artistic influences. Okay. Art school admissions across the board, no fan art, no anime. That's just what it is. Okay. So anybody who's, but what? No, no, <laughs> that particular context, you can't. Okay. That is one tiny part of the art world though. And it's all about context. Okay. Now the thing about fan art is actually sometimes for, let's say you're applying for a job at an animation company. Okay. Let's say that animation company makes Phineas and Ferb. That probably would be okay for you to have some fan art pieces of Phineas and Ferb or something in a similar style, because that's what you would be doing if you got hired at that animation studio and you're working on Phineas and Ferb, they would like to see that you could actually draw that way. So that's fine. Recognizable portraits is not discouraged. It, it depends on the context because if you're doing editorial illustration and the article is about Madonna, then yeah, it's gotta look like her. <laughs> you know, it's otherwise the article doesn't work very well. So the whole thing about these pieces of advice you hear about like, don't do this here, don't do that there. Remember it's that context that says not to do that, okay? In another context, it might be fine. And people don't realize that there's no intrinsic value or bad thing about an artwork. It can be so much about context. So you can have one painting, you put it in this gallery and nobody likes it, doesn't sell put it in a different gallery. Whoa, it's sold. It's the same artwork, but it's about the audience. Who's the audience? Okay. For a portfolio, it's admissions officers. That's not the same thing as people who love Spider-Man like Jordan and will be excited about anything with Spider-Man on it. Like that's fine. Okay. So we have questions here about cartoons. Uh, Karasu is asking, do you have to learn the rules for cartoon art? 
Jen says, if you want to draw cartoons, you should still learn how to draw realistically. I think I would use a different word. I don't think it's draw realistically. I think it's that you have to understand fundamentals. Like if you're drawing cartoons, a huge part of character design is posture. How does the figure stand? There are some characters who are like really droopy and hunched over. There's some that are very athletic looking and they have an almost regal way to the way they stand. That doesn't have a lot to do with drawing realistically, but it does have something to do with gesture drawing and capturing the stance and the structure. So I think I would just replace the word realistically with fundamentals. Kai says, I'm also self-taught finding technical errors recently. Do I need academic education? Kai, if you want to follow up with what you mean by technical errors, that would be helpful because I'm not totally sure what you mean by that. Yeah, I, I don't like this, ComCube. Like you're saying, you have to draw realistically to break the rules. Like realism is law. It's not. It, it's one way of working. There's so many other ways to be an artist. And I don't know why it's held up as this golden skill that, whoa, people that draw realistically are so good. It's like, no, they just know how to do that one thing. And that's fine. And I, I just don't believe in putting certain things on pedestals. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. And... Oh, JJ says, I've been trying to teach myself all the fundamentals of realism before approaching anything slightly abstract. And until now, it didn't occur to me that that doesn't make sense. It can make sense for some people. I mean, if it works for you, that's fine. But I can tell you, so this is interesting. So for portraiture, all right, most people say, oh, okay, the end goal is to make it look like the person. Okay, that's a goal people have with portraiture. But actually, one of my top portrait tips is to look at the face abstractly and don't say I'm drawing an eye. Say I'm drawing a structure which is within this eye socket and I see the dimensionality of it. That's, that's all abstract fundamentals. That doesn't have anything to do with something looking realistic. And so the thing is, all of these skills, there's so much crossover. So to say, this is abstraction, this is really like it doesn't work that way it's just so much more blended and the more you can see those connections instead of building all of these compartments for things to exist within the better your skill set is going to be remember everybody keep those super chats super stickers coming in the stream to enter the raffle it ends tomorrow and i'm really hoping we have a good push because we need it. <laughs> we really, really need it. Daisy's asking, can I ask what happened to the premium tracks on the website? I'm not in loop and was wondering. Well, the premium tracks were basically an online class, but they were long. So you take a premium track for a whole six weeks. We'd meet twice a week. And we just found that the model was not very inclusive to a lot of people because the cost was so high because it was a long, long class. And I just found that the workshops were more accessible, more people could do them because they didn't cost as much. And also we were able to cover way more topics 
because a track lasted so long that we couldn't explore the other ones. So we retired that model. And I mean, we're always doing stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, the second I'm like, this is going to work, it doesn't. And then uh, we do something else. <laughs> Let's see. C. Cantrell says, I've experienced ageism firsthand rebel against it every chance I get. Good. I mean, I experienced in academia. At a certain point, I was applying for these jobs. I was like, wow, everybody who they're hiring is half my age and has a resume that's a page. Meanwhile, mine is 10. And I mean, they also happen to be dating somebody that helps too. Nepotism works every single time. Tanish says, I'm 14. I haven't drawn for a month. I feel so bad. When I draw, I remember studies. All I can think about when studying is drawing. Don't worry about not drawing for any particular period of time. You want to feel better? I didn't do stuff for months. I had a really dry spell. I don't think I'm productive right now, but I, I've done a couple things that like, I'm not like into it. I've had months where I'm like, oh my God, I need to paint, but I'm not like that right now. I'm just doing little bits and pieces. I'd like to do more, but I'm not. But you guys can't like count how long you've been away because you know something, it just makes you feel worse. I mean, I know I haven't done stuff for a while, but I actually don't know for how long. So I'm like, yeah, eh, whatever. <laughs> and you know something, you guys, if it really makes you feel bad to not make a lot of work, don't try to make a big thing. Just doodle in your sketchbook. Do stuff that feels easy and fun for you because drawing shouldn't make you miserable. I mean, yeah, it's frustrating sometimes. It's challenging. But if you are just feeling so bad when you paint, that's not a good thing. <laughs> like, you want to have some of it be positive. Lil Tortilla says, I'm thinking about going to Savannah Design and Art for Art School. Is it a good school, you think? I really don't know a lot about SCAD. The only thing I have noticed, though, is so the College Art Association is the job board for all the faculty applying to art programs at the college level. And so they always have listings like, oh, the school has an opening for this. And one thing I did notice is that SCAD had so many faculty openings every year. And I suspect it's because the turnover rate is very high. And usually turnover rate, if it's very high, is usually a signal that the school isn't a great place to teach. I mean, there's some schools, it's not an accident, people will just get the job and be there the rest of their lives. That's usually the sign of a good job. So that's the only piece of information I have for you take it with a grain of salt. I have never been to that program. I don't know what it's like from the student point of view, but I did notice that about their faculty listings. Jordan says, I'm a 16-year-old artist submitting one of my pieces to the SCAD art competition. I'm debating on which piece I should submit. What are the best genres of art to catch the judge's attention? It's the work you really want to do. Don't think about how to catch their attention, make the work you want to do. Because you know something? Here's the secret about art competitions, you guys, and I'm sorry to tell you this. It is so subjective. It's it's like, did this judge 
like tuna did this judge like eating salmon it's so arbitrary and i know this because i've been on juries i've juried the scholastic art awards i've juried group shows with curators and oh my gosh there's one curator who's like i just have a thing for paintings like that I'm like really that that's why you're juring that in and so it's so random sometimes. So honestly, anybody who submits to a competition, if you don't get in, that is no reflection of you as an artist. It's just that judge that day that they have a ham or tuna sandwich. And Daisy's asking, can I ask what lower tiers rewards are included in the Patreon Sforza tier? So basically, the Sforza tier is $50 a month, okay? And we have all these different tiers. So there's another tier that's $15. There's one that's $5, okay? So part of, let's say, the $15 tier is getting the email newsletters from staff. And so it's below the Sforza tier. So that means you get all the rewards from all the tiers that are beneath Sforza, which is sweet. <laughs> In my opinion, it's a really great deal. Brian says, is there life after art competitions? How do you show your work? Honestly, art competitions are not that important. They really are not. And yeah, they're nice to have. I know for some people it is a good experience, especially if there is an exhibition portion where they're showing the winners or something like that. That's a great experience to be able to be in a show. But long-term it doesn't really help you that much unless it's one that has a really high financial reward. I mean, I won one many, many years ago that had a $3,000 prize, which was nice at the time. But really the only competitions that people really care about, like the ones that really matter are sort of like the Nobel prize artist version. So if you win a Guggenheim grant, if you win the Rome prize, which is this one year long residency and you get to live in Rome and work on a project. Like those are major, major competitions. But if you win a competition, that's great. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a really good experience, but art competitions to me are not where the beef of being an artist is. I think the beef of being an artist is making work that is fulfilling for you, where you feel like you are being creatively nourished and whatever context you want to put your work in. You know, some people want to sell, some people want to show it, some people just want to share. That's totally fine. Little Tortilla says, is it normal to have imposter syndrome for art? I find that I compare myself a lot to other 17-year-olds who are way more advanced than me. I also own a business, so it scares me. Oh, everybody. Hey, everyone here. If you have experienced imposter syndrome at any point, just say me in the chat. I, I think you'll find there's going to be a lot of me's in that chat. It, it never goes away. And I really mean that as a reassurance that I think as artists, when we push ourselves, we do something new that maybe we're not as experienced. You're going to have imposter syndrome. I had imposter syndrome when I sent out my freelance illustration portfolio. And people would say to me, yeah, but Clara, you've been working professionally for such a long time. And yes, that's true. And actually, I'll show you guys my 
freelance illustration portfolio. <laughs> this is the one that I put together. And I, I felt so crappy when I sent it out. I was like, I'm such an imposter. I'm a wannabe illustrator. There's a million people out there who are much better than me. And the fact of the matter is there's always somebody better than you. I mean, I going to be the best. Oh, no, that doesn't exist. And so it, it's just a normal part of being an artist, because honestly, anything that takes you away from feeling productive as an artist is not a good thing. You're much better off spending your time doing something that really matters to you. Daisy's asking, does this Forza tier include your snail mail? Yes, it does. And I have so many people who have been getting my snail mail for years at this point. And a lot of them have stacks of snail mail, which I just think is the cutest thing. Glenn says, I had my first ever gallery show in September, but the gallery sent my painting home with a tear in the linen. Oh my God. Was it insured? Because your work should be insured when it's in a gallery. I mean, assuming it's a legit gallery, there are plenty of galleries that may not offer that, but in theory that is on the gallery and insurance should cover that. I know that might not be the case, but I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, look at all these people, all these people experienced imposter syndrome. And Blue, I keep my snail mail in a special box. It's awesome. I love that you guys do that. Thank you so much, Boris, for the super chat. And it looks like I've got time for two more questions. So we're going to get a question from Chemical Milkshake and also from Jordan. This will be the last two questions. Okay. Do you have any tips for getting jobs or internships with no prior experience? I'm applying for a concept art internship now as a CC student, but I'm nervous about not having much to put on my resume. The thing is, if you're applying for an internship, they do not expect you to have experience. I mean, that's the whole point of an internship is look, we know you have no experience. We know you're young. You are trying to get your foot in the door. That's the definition of an internship. So my feeling about applying for jobs in general, if you're young and you don't have a lot of experience, you're not going to hide that from them without looking like an idiot. I mean, I've seen people really try to pad their resumes and it just comes across as embarrassing because you can spot it a mile away. I would much rather see a short resume that has good content on it that's really relevant to the job than people trying to puff themselves up. So you just give them who you are, give them your experience. That is the best thing you can do. Don't try to make yourself sound bigger than you are because that ends up coming across as number one, really unprofessional and also desperate and immature. And Jordan, is going to be our last question. I'm also attending the GHP program for fine arts. Have to have an interview to enter the finals. Do you think it would be a good idea to have a background on our history for the interview? I mean, it doesn't hurt. 
I don't know what GHP is, Jordan. I don't know if you want us to follow up on what that is exactly, but I, I don't know how long you have to prepare either. I mean, art history is not really something you can pick up in a week, but I think it would maybe be good to talk about the context that you see your work existing within. And part of that has to do with saying, okay, what are the past traditions of artists who work figuratively? What are the past traditions of artists who have done landscapes of mountains? And to understand a little bit of that connection, because art history is great. And I think more people <laughs> should work on it. It's uh, really fantastic. All right, everybody, Art Prof has services. We have artist calls, personal art curriculum, statement editing, portfolio critiques, and a huge thank you to these wonderful top Patreon supporters who are the vast majority of our budget. You guys are supporting us year round. Now, of course, the raffle only happens twice a year, but anything you guys can help to make sure our content has no paywalls is so, so important to us because we've got expenses. We need to pay them and we can't do it ourselves. Visit artprof.org. There's tons of content on there that's not on YouTube. Use the search bar. Artprof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And no Discord chat. It's Friday night. I have to chill out. <laughs> so anyway, this will be it. Subscribe to our channel for more tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Thank you everybody so much for watching. I'll see you next time. Bye.